Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. My name is Nick. Uh, if you're new here, uh, over the last three months, we've been going through a series in Galatians, and that's, that's mostly uh, what we do at Mercy Commons, is we, uh, we go through a book in the Bible. Um, if you've been around church, we call it expository teaching. But right now, we're in a series called Reimagine Resilience. Part of the reason we're in that series is because I came back from uh, Nepal and India with this real sense of God wanting to just embed some... Um, some fresh grit in our community that is not a grit that comes from our ability to try harder, but from our ability to abide in Jesus, who gives us peace, purpose, and passion. So the keys that we went through is recognizing that resilience is not just about sucking it up and trying harder, but about finding a way to abide with Jesus uh, so that we can access His power and empowerment through difficulties. The definition that we came up with was that resilience is the ability to joyfully adapt and recover and re-engage quickly without distorting your sense of self, your view of God, or others. Last week, we looked at the first of the building blocks of resilience, and we looked at how God can use our failures and our sins, uh, the things that we do to our own selves, Um, to actually build resilience. And this week, we're going to be looking at disappointments, wounds, and sufferings when things happen to us uh, that are not necessarily our fault. And so this morning, I'm going to be looking at the idea of suffering and trial and persecution. Now, within a group like this, I know that we are in different places and we're in different phases. And there may be people that have actually walked out of a a time of trial and persecution, and you might be feeling a sense of joy, you might be feeling a sense of resilience, you might be feeling like, I have seen God move in power. Or you might be one that has literally just stepped into a place of trial and suffering. And what I want to ask is, uh, as, as I pray, that you would just be open to the work of the Spirit without immediately rejecting something, uh, without immediately saying, but you don't understand me, let me say this from the outset, I don't. I don't understand you and I don't know where you're at. I do know that Jesus does. Uh, and, And we have the possibility this morning to listen to his voice as we walk through this. So join me as we pray. Father, I want to thank you for your power and for your kindness and I want to thank you that even as Sean reminded us, I want to thank you for for the fact that you are eternal, that you are sovereign. But I wanna wanna pray, God, for those of us that feel in moments like this that you are too big and too far away. I wanna pray, Father, for just a fresh recognition that you are not only transcendent, but that you are also imminent, you are with us. Uh, Only you can do that. Only you are able to hold the ever-expanding universe in the palm of your hand, and yet deeply enter a place of suffering and trial with an individual. And so I pray that as we we speak through this topic this morning, that your spirit um, would meet people where they're at and provide the healing, uh, the resilience, the recovery, even the honesty in the name of Jesus. So I would differentiate. Scripture is full of this. Peter is talking to a number of churches multiple times about the issue of suffering, and and he differentiates uh, suffering, and he differentiates suffering and persecution and our own stupidity. Um, And so last week, we covered a little bit of our own stupidity, but what Peter is saying is make sure that when you suffer and when you are experiencing a trial, uh, that it isn't because of the way in which you've acted. Unfortunately, some of the time within our Christian context, we believe that we are suffering from persecution, uh, but sometimes we're suffering because we're just being a jerk. Um, That isn't persecution. Um, The way in which we respond to life is um, just because we're a Christian is not automatically persecution. And so I want us to understand that. But this morning, what I want to talk about and more focus on is the idea of suffering. Now, suffering is something that every human being, whether they um, are a follower of Jesus Christ or not, will experience. And every human being will experience suffering because we live in a broken world. 
So suffering is not necessarily connected to the fact that you want to live a life that is glorifying Jesus. Persecution is. Uh, when you are being persecuted for your faith, that is when an outside force is attacking you because you're choosing to live faithfully as a follower of Jesus. Uh, many of you will be aware or know that Christianity is the most persecuted religion throughout the world. Um, Open Doors tells us that to this day there are people that are being murdered and maimed and, um, and food and opportunities are not afforded to them because they want to stand up as followers of Jesus. In our context, we don't really have much of that traditional sense of suffering. Uh, we don't suffer necessarily because food is being withheld from us or because we're afraid, like in the Philippines, that someone will chop our hand off if we are a follower of Jesus, because what they realized is that killing people didn't help because we made them martyrs, so now what we want to do is maim them. These kinds of things are happening. And that's why we need to be praying for our brothers and sisters around the world. That's why, as a small church, we are connected with a broader group of churches in advance that has churches in Africa and in India um, and in Thailand where these things are actually happening. For us, though, our trials and suffering are a little different. For us, we have the sufferings and trials of trying to feel significant or a lack of power. We have the problem of having porn in our pocket on our phones. We have the problem of mental health made a hundred times worse because we have this little device that in, in when I was a, a teenager and I wasn't invited to a party, I didn't know that I wasn't invited to the party, right? No one told me because they didn't want me there, and so I didn't know that I'd missed out this whole thing. I did not have the extra burden of looking on my phone and seeing how much fun everyone else was having because they were invited to this party. And so, as I said at the beginning, it's a tricky subject, but I wanna talk about how the idea of suffering is a building block for resilience, because what it can do is it helps us to prepare for trials, it helps us to activate wisdom, and it ultimately produces joy. It helps us to prepare for trials because we've been here before. Um, I am about to leave. We have a leadership conference for advance in Greece, um, and I haven't been to Greece in 25 years. And the last time I went to Greece, I was detained by the police, and I won't tell you about that story. It's a long story. It wasn't my fault, right? How many detention stories start with it wasn't my fault? But it really, it, it genuinely wasn't my fault. And, um, and as a result, we are prepared. Car and I are prepared. We had the oddest conversation. Uh, as we were packing your bags. You have your passport, I have mine, you have cash, I have cash, you have your own change of clothes, and I have my change of clothes, because if we get separated for days, then we know how to handle it. Um, because when I was separated from Karen, she didn't have any money, I didn't have any clothes, and so I had to wash the same pair of underpants for five days, okay? <laughs> Now I know, in the context of broader trial and suffering, uh, that maybe pales, but it was suffering for me. Um, and so now I am prepared, wherever I go, whether it's a day or whether it's a week, I have a clean pair of underpants in my carry-on luggage, right? In fact, I've even forgotten that it's been in there, um, and so the bag that I usually use is the bag that I just take everywhere, and one day I was looking at a conference and I pull out a pair of underpants, and I'm like, oh, that's from the last time I went on a trip, right? We get to prepare because we've been through trials. 1 Peter 4 verse 12 says this, Beloved, do not be surprised. Do not think it strange at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange or alien were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed." And then we know through Scripture that suffering is not an abnormality. It is a certainty. I remember going through something difficult, and I was saying to God, God, why me? Has anyone ever asked that question? God, why me? And God replies, why not you? My son suffered. My prophets have suffered. The people that I've sent to speak this word of grace and truth have suffered. Suffering is part of what actually purifies our faith. Why would I withhold that from you? 
And I never thought about the idea of saying to God, God, I don't want to suffer as God withholding something that is ultimately for my good. And so we know that Jesus has warned us that, that the apostles of the early church have consistently warned us, and church history has shown us uh, that suffering is not an abnormality but a certainty. It is something that we need to accept and prepare for to the best of our ability. And when we are preparing for it, we are already exercising a sense of resilience. I'm going to say something here now that's going to cause some challenges, because enduring a trial or a period of suffering ultimately can reduce our anxiety. What? How can you say that? Well, because I think sometimes what happens is our greater levels of fear and anxiety are because of the fear of the unknown. And so what happens is a lot of our fear and anxiety is doubled when we don't know what to expect or when this is going to happen. And yet when we've been through a time of trial and suffering and we've seen, seen God be faithful, and even though there's pain and even though there's wounding and even though there's potentially scarring, we actually know that we are able to, with His help, withstand this time of trial and suffering. Because sometimes the fear of something happening is actually worse than it happening itself. I'll give you a silly little example. Karen and I, uh, Karen has suffered a lot being married to me for as long as she's married to me. I know, Jacqueline is nodding too vociferously in the front here, but you know. And most of you will know that that is true. But one of the areas that has been particularly difficult for her is I, I like adventurous things and I like dangerous things. And the more dangerous, the better, because I feel, like, I feel like if I could die doing this, then this is something worth doing, right? So bungee jumping and skydiving and deep sea fishing and all those kinds of things, like uh, diving. So one day I said to Karen, let's do scuba diving. And she's like, no. And I'm like, please, please, come on. We need a buddy. We can do the scuba diving thing. She's like, no. I'm like, come on. This will be good. You know, you can stretch yourself. And so she, she finally admits. She, she says she's going to do that. We're sitting, we're sitting in, a, uh, in the class, and we're going through the classes. And she, and she said, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be able to do this. And then we get to the... Uh, the lesson on shark etiquette. What to do when a shark approaches you. And she's like, I'm out, I'm out, this, this is it. I'm not sitting through a lesson on what to do when I'm underwater and cannot breathe when a shark comes close to me. That's it, I'm like, but babe, they're preparing you for it. They know that this could happen. Bad, bad idea. That was a bad idea. It was a bad, bad idea. So, so this idea of the fact that something like this could happen for her was way worse. Ultimately, when she experienced it, she did experience it with a sense of trepidation. But ultimately, she came out of that and she said, actually, and how many of us have said, that wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be? And that's one of the things that trials, having gone through trials, is we may be bruised, we may be a little bit kind of crumpled, but we know that we are okay. We know that healing has taken place when we're not triggered by the past, but we can use it as evidence of not only Jesus' presence, but his partnership and his power in the midst of that suffering. Now, guys, I'm not saying open yourselves to intentionally abusive situations where you're going to suffer in order to enhance your spirituality. That is not what Scripture is saying. In fact, Scripture says there's enough suffering out there without you pursuing suffering on your own to prove something to you or to God, because God does not require that. God is not saying, I'm requiring you to do this, but God is saying, when you experience this, I will be with you in the midst of that. The second thing that, um, that suffering does as it helps build our resilience is that it activates wisdom. James, when he's talking to a church that is under severe persecution, says this in verse 2, Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness, sorry, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now, the reason we need wisdom in order to be a resilient people, we also need wisdom to be able, specifically in the area of suffering, to know, is this a trial or is this a temptation? Because the way in which we deal with a trial and a temptation are very, very different. 
Uh, we, we need to flee from temptation. It's actually pretty clear. Scripture is clear. Flee from this temptation. But a trial cannot be avoided. A trial needs to be walked through. And so instead of trying to look for a path out of the trial, what we need wisdom is we need to be able to partner with Jesus through the trial. Now, when we confuse the two and we think, okay, this is something that I need to run away from, we're not accessing the power that Jesus is wanting to give us to be able to walk through this difficult trial. Sometimes a trial can lead to temptation. What do you mean, Nick? Well, some of the problems of the way in which we have um, been broken through sin is that we try and fix our own problems. And sometimes when you're going through a trial, like me, when you go through a trial, you are more open to temptation. And so for me, I am more tempted when I'm tired and when I feel entitled. So when I'm going through a trial, a period of trial and a period of suffering, and I'm feeling sorry for myself, and I'm also just fatigued and tired, and then temptation comes, I need to be able to ask God the wisdom, God, I know that you're doing this in here, but I need the strength to actually be able to flee from that. And so one of the things that we need to ask God for, and James tells us in this, in this uh, letter that he's writing to the churches, if you need wisdom, if you lack wisdom, ask God and He will give it to you. God, is this a trial that I need to endure, or is this a trial that I need to escape? We mustn't assume that every trial and every suffering needs to be endured. The issue isn't how much pain can you stand, because then you are a good Christian. That's not the issue. God may be providing a way out for you of this trial. We know the, the story of Paul, an apostle, and there's two interesting times in Paul's life where, um, where it says, and they, they wanted to kill Paul, and so what they did is they, they put him in a basket, and they lowered him outside the city wall, and he went to another city. I have a lot of questions about that, right? What kind of basket? How big was the basket? How small was Paul, you know? And can you imagine being the guys is like, do not drop the apostle of God. Like, who wants to go back and say, i got something to tell you about that plan to get Paul out? Anyway, there's this, there's this opportunity where Paul faces opposition everywhere he goes, and yet in this instance, there's a wisdom to actually say, we're not going to stand and fight this. We're actually going to lower him outside of the wall, and he's going to escape. There's another story of Paul in Lystra. In Lystra, Paul is saying something that people don't like. They grab stones, they stone him. They drag him to the outskirts of the city, and this is what Scripture says, thinking him to be dead. They leave him out there. The disciples come to him, and you know what Scripture says? And they went back into the city. The same city that stoned you, the same city that dragged you out thinking you were dead, they went back in. Now, what are you trying to say, Nick? I'm saying we need wisdom to be able to know, God, do I need to endure this or do I need to escape this? And there isn't a one-size-fits-all for this. An abusive environment is not an environment that is challenging, not an environment that is demanding, not an environment that isn't what you thought it was going to be. If you're in an abusive environment, there's a couple of clues. One of the major clues is fear and anxiety, that you don't know what's about to happen and you don't feel safe with the people in that environment. Just because something is hard and difficult doesn't mean it's something that you need to escape. My wife is a doula, and she talks about the four questions that she has asked most consistently in a time of great trial and suffering when a woman is giving birth. I told the worship team this morning, I said, guys, imagine men gave birth. It would be one and done. That's it. This is not happening again, and we're going to find a painless way to do this if it is going to happen, right? I think women are some of the most incredible people to be able to endure nine months of another human being sharing the internals of your body and then popping it out in an hour, right? And it's not an hour. I know. I know it's not an hour. I know. 27, I got 27. We've got 28, 28, got 20. Okay, I know, I know, I know, right? That's nothing. 
But these are the questions that she's most often asked when she's at a point of delivery. The first question is, where are you? Because, because when, women, when, women, um, when women have Karen in the room, they want to know, are you here? Are you present? Where, where are you? The second question that they ask her is, what is happening? This is especially for first-time moms. The third question is, is this normal? Is what I'm experiencing, is this, is this normal? Do we need to do something about this? Will this end? Is this, is this pain, is this suffering going to end? And is it worth it? And all the moms say, yes. yes, it's worth it. It's not wrong to say, let this cup pass from me. Jesus said that. It's not wrong to be in a time of trial and suffering and say, God, I don't know that I can handle this. But we also need to be able to utter the frail words that Jesus also uttered, yet not my will but yours be done. And the way that we can answer those questions is to say to Jesus, Jesus, where, where are you in this? Are you, are you present? And the answer is always yes. You may feel alone, but you are not alone. What is happening? Nick, what's happening to you is what has happened to Christians for thousands of years. This is normal. Is it normal? Yes. Will this end? Yes, it will end. And is it worth it? Yes, it is worth it. Because your faith is being purified and tested to a greater value than gold. Church, we don't deserve pain. This is not something where, in, in the sense of the kind of brokenness that we live in, we deserve pain. This is, this is not why we go through suffering. But what I want to say is that we cannot escape it. We don't deserve it, but we can't escape it because it is a purifying, shaping, and maturing tool that God uses. However, we're also not promised the perfect life. And I'm just so grateful that there never has been a sense of bait and switch in the way in which Jesus spoke to us, to his disciples, in the way in which church has, um, throughout church history, has said life with Jesus is the most ultimately fulfilling thing you can experience. It will also probably be one of the most difficult things you will experience because you are, you are swimming against the current of this world. Finally, it produces joy. Verse 2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And this is an interesting two words. And let or continue to allow steadfastness to have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Peter says to the church, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now at first glance, I understand you can look at me and say, Nick, that is not just illogical, but is dangerous. Am I, am, I, am, I, am I calling you to live in denial? Am I calling you to reject what is happening to you emotionally, to reject that actually something is hard or difficult or you shouldn't be doing it? Am I calling you to suppress your emotions? I'm not calling you to do any of those things. Just read the Psalms. David did not do any of those things. What I am asking you to do is to look beyond the reality that you are suffering and to know that, that there, there is a purpose in this. I'm not asking you to rejoice in the act of suffering because Scripture has said, do not call what is good evil and what is evil good. You can say that what is happening to me is not good. I'm not asking you to call it good. I'm saying this thing that is happening to me is not good. Don't call evil what is evil good and what is good evil? Something that is evil, though, can be used for good. We know this with Joseph's story. What was meant for harm has turned around to be for my good. But I'm not asking you to call it good. But only a reimagining of suffering can lead to rejoicing. And only an understanding that something precious is being shaped in me can give me a sense of spirit-empowered resilience. I can have a sense of joy in the context of suffering because there is just a deeper intimacy that I feel with Jesus when I've gone through a time of suffering. I mean, we, we experience this as human beings. 
Just think of a really difficult moment that you've been through with someone. It really bonds you together, right? You've gone through this difficult time together. Now, I know as human beings, there's this whole thing of, you know the phrase, too soon? You know, when you, when you make a joke about something that was maybe a little bit hard and someone says to you, that's too soon. I remember a good friend of mine had gone through an incredibly difficult time. And we were going through, uh, we were at Thanksgiving meal. Um, and, and I said to him, well, at least it's not like last year because he had gone through a really difficult time at Thanksgiving. And he's like, no, too soon, too soon, bro, you know. The next year, though, one of the things that he was most grateful for was the fact that God had sustained him through that time. And that moment, that act of suffering that happened around Thanksgiving time is a moment that we often together give thanks for. And there's just this deeper intimacy with us because we've gone through that difficult thing together. In situations like this, we expect more of the power of the Holy Spirit because Paul tells us that in our weakness, his strength is made perfect. Uh, that when we actually say, God, I'm not sure that I have what it takes, he says, I'm glad you got there because I have what it takes in this moment. Spurgeon says this, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. I have spat at that wave many, many times. I have. I'm like, I am standing here ready for this wave. Come, let's go. And just because I've spat at that wave, just because I've thought, no, you're not going to move me, just because I haven't done what Spurgeon says does not mean that God doesn't invite me to do it again and again and again because those waves will come. And this time, I want to do what he has said. I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. I've experienced God in joy and in triumph. I've also experienced God in pain and in anguish. Those two things are so incredibly different. I've experienced it in my own pain and anguish, but I can tell you the joy of being present when I've literally seen people being shaped through suffering and being able to see God purifying their faith and actually growing my faith, the rock of ages as we cling to that. It leads to an attractive and more resilient soul. The spirit of glory and of God rests upon you in a unique and tangible way. I've told you this story before, but Karen and I had the privilege of being in the hospital room um, after a child was stillborn and this was one of those times where I felt I saw the grace of God on Karen in this moment of suffering. And she was there and she said, I want you to sit here. And it was, it was um, Alan Ronell, Karen and I, and we were in this room. Um, and, uh, and, and the baby, they were holding the stillborn baby. And they said, we just want to worship. And when I feel like I'm going through times of trial and suffering, I think of that moment. And I think of that moment of how what was built in me, and that wasn't even my trial of suffering, it was their trial. And they were weeping, and they were crying, and they were worshiping God. They weren't denying their emotions, they weren't pretending that this was fine, but they were worshiping in that moment. I felt this deep sense of privilege being in that room, and knowing that ultimately he would set all things right. Their souls became so attractive to me. We think that something is being robbed of you when you're suffering. We think that, that you are less. But what it actually does is enlarge us and enlarge our faith. You know, a, a crucible, because Peter talks about this. Peter talks about our faith is being tested as through fire. A crucible is not um, a trash heap where you destroy garbage. A crucible is a creative tool. That's what it is used for. The higher the temperature of God's crucible, the more stubborn our souls um, are when it enters the crucible, the more pliable they become. Because ultimately what the crucible does is it removes our idols. What the crucible does is it helps us to see that that which God has put in us is pure and will stand the fire. And it helps us to see that we are not less, but that we are more 
because of, cre- of his creative work in that crucible. Only a purposeful and honest suffering that points me and the people that are watching to my Savior, not my ability to endure, is what gives God glory. It isn't this white-knuckledness that actually makes people look to God. Because when I left that hospital room, I went home to be with God and I said, I don't know that I could do what they did in that moment. But thank you that you showed me that, that they are able to do that. And then I can push into you in my time of trial and suffering. Now, I've seen it in this community. I've seen people learn to kiss the wave, but that doesn't mean that they've never spat on the wave. It doesn't mean that they've always handled things with tremendous amount of grace. But I've seen people come to terms with deep suffering in the way in which it has shaped them. Jess, won't you join me up here? Um, last week, Jess said to me, you know, we, um, we often celebrate moments in the context of community. One of the things that we maybe need to allow some space for is moments of disappointment. Um, and uh, and uh, Jess and uh, Cornell came to our house on Saturday and just deeply ministered to Karen and I. That wasn't their intention. They were just talking about what they've walked through. Uh, but because of the suffering that they've walked through, there was a joy and a resiliency and, and just a sense of being able to see this attractiveness in what has happened. So I wanted, I wanted Jess to share some of what God has shown her with regards to suffering um, as we land. Just don't tell my dad that I'm sitting at the pulpit. <laughs> Okay. Um, Many of you know that I've struggled with chronic pain. I have persistent daily migraines that affect every day of my life. I've been to more doctors than I can remember, and I've done every test and treatment that's been recommended. There isn't a medication I've turned down or procedure I've been reluctant to try. I've had numerous ER visits, a couple hospital stays, a three-month pain program, five years of therapy, and follow-ups every month for the last decade. No matter the attempt, nothing has given answer to a cause or been able to stop the pain. When I first started having chronic pain, it was debilitating. I went from being a perfectly healthy 25-year-old with a history of migraines to a 25-year-old with now daily intractable migraines. Nothing was normal about life anymore. I spent more days in bed than out, usually in a quiet, dark room, isolated from the world. Everyday plans had to be filtered by whether my health would allow me to participate or not, and most days it was the latter. I'm hard-pressed to find a day in the last decade that has been pain-free. Of course, with migraines, any of the 40-plus associated symptoms can appear unpredictably and usually in multiples. If you can imagine that throbbing is the last thing you feel when you close your eyes at night, It's what wakes you from your dreams, what greets you first thing in the morning and follows you like a shadow all day. It's not hard to picture the weight of that difficulty and how unbearable that is. Any discomfort, any discomfort, felt every moment of your life with no end in sight and zero answers is hard to endure. Six years ago, at the height of my pain, I went through a really deep depression. I'd cry several times a day. When I would feel a little better, I'd have crippling anxiety over when feeling good would end. That time in my life was like a cold, dark winter, and I felt like I was dying inside. I didn't know how to cope. When I look back on that time in my life, I recount it with a sense of great loss. Loss of a social life, loss of control, loss of healthy days, loss of what I thought my life was supposed to look like, even the loss of inadequacy for the kingdom. I had so many ideas on how I would live out my faith, and instead I was confined to a bed. Worse yet, what began as a spiritual, as a physical battle, soon turned into a mental and spiritual battle. I may have to wait to see Jesus before I can fully comprehend that there had been heavenly meetings I was unaware of, where the enemy was asking to sift me like wheat, like he did with Peter, or challenging God, 
but if he was allowed to touch my health, I would surely curse God like he assumed with Job. Either way, it took a while for me to realize how hard this new reality would be, not just on the body, but on the soul. Where was God in all of this? How could he allow this torture to take place? Was this happening because of sin? Did God even care? How could this be a part of some great plan? I'd pray and beg for forgiveness over and over again for sins of omission and commission, believing that the repetition of my confessions and measure of my guilt meant that I could somehow pay penance and fix the situation I was in. I now know that this is a matter for the blood of Jesus, not my futile efforts. I remember the enemy feeding me lies continually, and not that he stopped since. A lot of those lies were through the vehicle of the believers in my community. I was so tired of hearing the same messages of unconfessed sin, of needing to have more faith, or that I could try harder and stress less, or simply not being believed at all. My desperation was so great that I was open to anything. I came to a place where I couldn't sing, I couldn't worship, couldn't hear another Bible verse, couldn't spare another visit at the bedside. All I could do was cry out to God in my anguish. In anger and with great resentment to this God who was able but not willing to help. I was in a sea, drowning from wave after wave, knocking me down. And all the people in my world were on the shoreline, watching this happen. Some were empathetic, some judgmental, and some doubtful. Almost all were trying to be helpful in the only way they knew how, but they were bounded by the shoreline. No matter the response, I felt alone in the water, surrounded by darkness. I didn't have the mental capacity to fight and discern. I had watched how the suffering was affecting my family, mainly Cornell. I couldn't show up for them in that season. I started believing that they would be better off without me. I imagined ways in which I could remove myself from the situation. I imagined them with a new mom, a new wife, and the joy they'd be experiencing. My family deserves someone better than me. One day in particular, I went into researching ways that I could end my suffering. It was sort of comforting in a weird way, imagining that I could be one step away from not having to fight this uphill battle. I was really tired. All the while, I believed that this would be the best for my family. Like, Cornell would be so much happier. Emily would be so much happier without me in the picture. I had a moment where it hit me how deep my desperation and misery had taken me, and I dialed a suicide hotline before I could change my mind. After that moment, I recognized that everything in my control had been stripped away. I was left with God alone. No one could sub into this battle for me. As much as my family loved and supported me, they could not carry the burden I'd been given. It is said that chronic illness requires learning the balance between surrendering and fighting, and I had been fighting long enough. I submitted to God in great sadness that if this is what he wanted me to continue to hold, then I would do so in hopes that the other side of heaven would be better. Job's story became a sweet balm to my wounds. His story didn't end in sorrow alone. His story ended in redemption, a double portion and proved faithfulness. God may not have allowed my pain to end, but what the enemy could do to my physical body would no longer be the focus. Where my soul was at with God would be. If he was for me, what could the enemy do against me? For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. God began doing a work in my heart and reshaping my view of him. Yes, I believed him sovereign. 
yes, I believed him able to do miracles. I never once, in all of that darkness, doubted his dominion or power. But knowing him to be good, truly believing that I was loved, was a belief that needed to be deconstructed and put back together. The Lord began to speak to me with songs like, it is well with my soul. In the early hours of the morning, when the world was asleep, my world was loud and unbearable. He would send a brother to tell me that a season of abundance was coming. He sent a sister that told me that he would restore the years the locusts have eaten. He would bring me new doctors and new treatment that would lessen the moderate to severe pain I was in to a manageable mild pain. He would bring me a community, Mercy Commons, of strong believers who reject perfection and works-based faith and instead come alongside me, pointing me to Jesus time and time again, who would reiterate the good news of the gospel consistently and take the time to do life with me in the good and the bad, a community that makes space to walk with you through difficulty, a community that would show me that I was never alone in those waters. God was always with me. He would never forsake his beloved. He delights in me. He sings over me. He lavishes goodness on me. He gives me new mercies every morning and a refuge in his wings. He's kept track of my sorrows and collected my tears, recording them in his book. He promises to bind up my wounds, strengthen me, and uphold me. He invites me to come to him weary and burdened so that he can give me rest. He gives me hope for a day where he will wipe away every tear and rid every pain. Pain is not wasted in the kingdom of God. This I know to be true because the Lord hates darkness and will one day make all things right. I can rest in that truth even when things would be difficult. I still struggle. It's still a struggle, I won't lie, but I'm not suffering, not in that same way. This January, I became pregnant with our third child. We were filled with so much joy and excitement. Everything about this pregnancy from the first moment felt special. I would awake in the middle of the night, remember my baby, touch my belly and fall asleep praising God at how different life looked now. But God had a different plan for my baby's future and that plan meant that he or she would beat us to heaven. I remember telling our life group at the beginning of the year that this year held a change, something special for our family, that I didn't know what that would be, that it would be life-changing. What that change was would be different than what we had imagined. I went into a spiral of blaming myself, of my body failing me, of failing my family. And all the why questions started again. Once again, it was my body. I was at the center of grief for my family. But you know what? That spiral had a familiar feeling. I recognized it. And I made it obedient to Christ. Surrendering yet again. Although I had never experienced this kind of difficulty, the prescription was the same. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God did a work in my heart once again through suffering. He gave me a word and an image that our baby had a purpose and that its life was not taken prematurely. We were not robbed. We were not damaged. He gave me the gift of his presence in the middle of the turmoil because experiencing God on the mountaintops is wonderful, 
but the valleys just bring a different intimacy and dependence. He is near to the brokenhearted and saves those crushed in spirit. I felt his presence with me, felt him telling me that it would be okay. He reminded me of his goodness and faithfulness in my life many times before. How time and time again he had always been there. I responded to his love and worship and adoration. When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. That's really brave. And uh, Ben, you can come up. One of the things that I want to say right off the bat is this can seem manipulative in the sense of like, what I went through and the way I handled it, you can do that. That's not why we're doing this. We're doing this because of the power of testimony. We're doing this because there is someone that has experienced both chronic pain and acute pain and suffering in the midst of that is actually saying it is well with my soul. And I know this morning may not have given some clear answers to you, but I, I, I want to say this. There's three things that we recognize and rejoice in. And we recognize and rejoice in what Jesus has done. And that Jesus has paid the penalty for our sins, his body broken for our wholeness. And there still is a degree of wholeness that we can achieve this side of eternity. And we will not stop praying for that, for the suffering to end, for healing to come. We're also aware of what Jesus is doing presently, is that he is with us in the midst of our suffering. Though I walk through the fire, you are there. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear, for you are there, your rod and staff comfort me. But we also rejoice in what he will do. And we rejoice in the fact that he will return. And when he returns, there will be no more suffering. And there will be no more trial. And there will be no more pain. And there will be a sense in which the intimacy that we've experienced with Jesus here that is multiplied through our suffering in these moments will be multiplied through our joy. That we will see him face to face. And I know many of us will say, and that's when I'm going to ask why. And I think we see him face to face and he will look at us. And it will just all melt because we'll know for the rest of eternity, we will never, ever experience what we experienced on this planet. We're, uh, we're going to respond and I want to create a little bit of space uh, for, for people to receive prayer. So um, we're going to respond in communion. This is what we're going to do. Um, if you have a sense of, of uh, whether it's from what Jess share, which by the way, thank you, Jess, uh, or something that Nick had, had preached. We talked this morning, one of the very first things we just said is God's grace is sufficient for you. And one of the ways that we access that is through one another and praying with one another. So if you need to receive prayer over something that you're, that you need wisdom about, you need to know that you're not alone. I want to invite you to receive prayer and take communion together on the side, right? Um, so if that's that's you, if you're released to pray for people, I would like to invite you over to, to, to my left, to your right. The rest of us, we're going to grab the elements, the bread and, and, and the cup. You can come back to your seat unless you need to receive prayer. If you need to receive prayer, uh, please make your way over to the side. And we'll all take communion together. You'll take communion with the people that are going to pray for you. Make sense? Let's go ahead and do that now. We, um, just as we were singing, I was just reminded that the night when the Lord instituted this meal is when he faced his own uh, greatest kind of uh, trial, the night he was betrayed. And knew what he was walking into and um, I was just struck with the reality that the, the gospel writers tell us that they were uh, they were singing 
I mean, that was a part, as part of the, the, the meal that they, that they took. They would recite and sing together the, the, the psalms, and sing in the face of what he was going to walk into. And, you know, God may not give us answers to the things that we're struggling with, but he gives us himself presence of himself and so this meal is a very tangible reminder of the reality that he is with us and this is a family meal and maybe um, maybe you're someone who doesn't know Jesus this this meal is set apart and set aside for those who do know him and to get to know him is as simple as saying Jesus I, I'm not sure what all this means but I'd like to follow you and if that is you, I would like to invite you to say that to him right now. Jesus, I am ready to follow you to start to figure out what this all means. For the rest of us, we take, and maybe for you for the first time, we take the bread and we take it and we remember that this was his body broken for us and we do this in remembrance of him. up as a symbol of the blood of Christ that was shed for the full remission of your sins, the sins that are canceled and separated from you from east as far as west. That's pretty far. Thank you, Lord. We take this in remembrance of you. Lord, we thank you that you give us yourself and that you give us one another. We love you. We bless you. In Jesus' name, the church said, amen. Amen. If you need to receive prayer, please, please do. Don't, don't leave without receiving the grace that is available to you through, uh, through the body. Um, for the rest of us, we're going to be out back, kind of hanging out. There's coffee and donuts. We'd love to meet you if you're new. Uh, thank you for being here. Go out and be the church. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.